to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Friday, April 8th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior breaking down all things waiver wire as we go through opening weekend. We have games in progress as we speak here on a Friday afternoon. And as we mentioned last week, each and every week we do this show live starting right around 4 o'clock Eastern, 1 Pacific. So you can watch us on YouTube ask questions along the way if you have questions about players you're thinking about adding or dropping during the upcoming weekend. So tons of ground to cover, Al. It's been a really fun first couple of days of the season, day and a half to this point. We're going to begin, as we do each week, focusing on some hitters of interest. And I think if you are looking at hitters in a 12-team league or anything smaller, or even in some leagues that drafted Two-plus weeks ago, there are some big-name prospects that are in much better spots than we expected them to be. Just a couple weeks ago, C.J. Abrams made the opening day roster for the Padres. We found out about that in a midday Thursday. Uh, Josh Lowe ended up with a spot on the Rays opening day roster, and he was in the opening day lineup uh, as the DH against a left-handed starter. So I think that's encouraging from a playing time perspective that his bat was still prioritized even though it was a lefty-lefty matchup for him against John Means. The Jeremy Pena situation, I think, was a little clearer for a lot longer once the shortstop free agent pool uh, dried up and the Astros didn't go out and, and add help via trade. But those three guys, Abrams, Lowe, and Pena, they're rostered in no more than two-thirds of, of CBS leagues. And I think that's Pena, who has actually the highest roster rate right now. Abrams and Lowe, not too far behind if you're in a situation where somehow maybe all three of those guys are available or at least multiples are available, how are you prioritizing them as the most impactful hitters that might be available in some of our more shallow formats? Well, yeah, you'd said that Pena is the most rostered player, and I think that's for good reasons. I would definitely make him the highest priority just because I I think I, I like his chances the most to really deliver on power and speed. I don't think power is really going to be a part of Abrams' uh entire package for this season, uh, maybe some speed. And we'll, we'll talk about that obviously in a little bit. Uh, Josh Lowe, I, I think maybe um, partly because of, of platooning that we see those counting stats not pile up to the degree that they could pile up for Pena. And I've got some questions about batting average for Josh Lowe too. Uh, but to, just to get back to Abrams for a second, overall, I definitely think he's a distant third out of these three players. But this coming week, Padres have an interesting schedule. They start off with three games in San Francisco and then come home for four games against Atlanta. Six right-handed pitchers, so you don't really have to worry about platooning there uh, for Abrams. And there's a couple of first-string catchers on those teams that have not had a lot of success at throwing out base stealers. So I don't know how much luck Abrams is going to have in terms of getting on base against two really good pitching staffs. But if he gets on base, I think he's going to be stealing. Yeah, I think the thing with Abrams that we have to be careful with in the shorter term is how much he's going to play against lefties. They faced Madison Bumgarner, a lefty, for their opener on Thursday. Abrams was not in the lineup. Hassan Kim was in the lineup. He's a righty. So I think they can mix and match and, and move guys around a little bit where if they don't want to play Abrams against lefties, they don't have to. Or perhaps because it was opening day and because it would have been his debut, they decided to wait for a more favorable spot for him to get that first opportunity, and then we'll see him get more opportunities against lefties in the future. It's always hard to tell how flexible teams are going to be with young players with those opportunities, but I do like Abrams at a relative discount compared to 
some of the other prospects we've talked about throughout this draft season, it seems like there was less buzz because there was less certainty about his chances of having a role with the Padres to begin the season. But like you, I've got Pena a notch above both Abrams and Lowe because I think the Astros are pretty firmly committed to him as their everyday shortstop. I could see both Abrams and Lowe losing small shares of playing time because they're they're left-handed hitters. You know, your concerns about Lowe from an average perspective, I think, are are warranted. We saw him hit 238 back at high A in 2018. He only hit 252 at double A in 2019. He's been young for the level everywhere he's played. He walks a lot, though. So I think while it hurts us a little bit from a fantasy perspective in our leagues that still use batting average, that he could have some downside in that category thanks to his, his swing and miss. Uh, I do think he does the real-life things really well, getting on base at a high clip and playing great defense in center field that can help keep that playing time afloat. So there is categorical risk, but I don't think there's a lot of playing time risk for him. And as everybody knows by now, Josh Lowe, 26 for 26 as a base dealer at Durham last year at AAA, and he popped 22 home runs along the way. So really nice group of players still out there in some shallow leagues. Uh, I look at this other kind of group of, of shallow league players, and Andrew McCutcheon gets a spot in the opening day lineup as the cleanup hitter for the Brewers. And when they signed him, Al, they said... He was going to be their primary DH this year, which put you know Rowdy Telez and Keston Hira in sort of a either a platoon at first base or at least some kind of ongoing competition for playing time there because Hira and Telez both have very limited defensive ability. They tried to move Hira around this spring. Uh, so I'm curious, when you look at Andrew McCutcheon right now, what type of player do you think he can be at this stage of his career, especially if he's getting a high volume of playing time working out of that cleanup spot for the Brewers? I think it could be somebody that you could stream in 12-team leagues and really should be a stalwart in anything that's deeper than that. And just to illustrate that, that streaming potential DVR, the Brewers scheduled this coming week. They start off with three games in Baltimore. Now, uh, they are going to get John Means, but then they come home and play four games against the Cardinals, and they'll get the starters, all the starters who are not Adam Wainwright. And I don't really love that rotation. So uh, you take Adam Wainwright out of the, out of the equation. That's a really good week for matchups for Andrew McCutcheon. So he's pretty widely available in shallower formats. And I think he's absolutely viable for this coming week. And I think I think there will be other weeks in the future where that's going to be equally true. Yeah, and I think the key to the bottom of your roster in a shallow league is making sure that the players you're leaning on for that last outfield spot or for a UT or a corner or middle spot, that those players are not missing out on playing time because they're stuck too low in a batting order. A lot of players that you might have liked during draft season end up hitting 6th or 7th, and as a result, they just play a little bit less over the long term than someone like McCutcheon, who ends up higher than we expected, and being really sharp on the margins can actually make a pretty big difference as you look at, at 10 and 12 team leagues and how they tend to play out. So at a minimum, I think you're absolutely right. I think he fits firmly into your streaming conversations in weekly leagues because when they have six or seven games on the schedule, there's a very good chance that Andrew McCutcheon is going to be in that spot for all of those opportunities. Now, there's another outfielder that's out, in, out there in a decent number of leagues, not necessarily in 15 plus, but in a lot of 12s, and that's Brandon Marsh. I think people have forgotten that Brandon Marsh was coming off of shoulder surgery last year, and I think that probably impacted the quality of what he was able to bring for us at the plate during his debut with the Angels a year ago. 
Yeah, and I I like Brandon Marsh. I certainly like, uh, like you said, the value, which, of course, at this point, we need to be kind of uh, transitioning out of talking about ADPs. But uh, there there is a recent development, though, that has me a little less optimistic about Brandon Marsh, which is some recent comments from Joe Madden. First, a comment about two or three days ago saying, and this is, I believe, before Taylor Ward went on the IL, saying that he envisioned giving all three of Ward, Brandon Marsh, and Joe Adele equal playing time. And now with Ward on the IL, he made a statement, uh, I think it was just on Thursday, that he expects Ward to be an everyday player when he returns. Now, I don't know how literal we should take that. I don't know if those two statements are intended to be the same thing. But even if we go with the first statement, that's going to cut into playing time for Adele and and for Marsh, I think more than most of us, certainly more than I was anticipating. But I, I know we were going to talk about Ward a little bit later on, but... I think it makes him kind of intriguing with that much playing time. Yeah, I guess I'm having a hard time seeing how the math actually works out. And I think my expectation right now would be that if Joe Adele and Brandon Marsh are playing reasonably well, they'll change their tune about how much Taylor Ward is going to play. I think a big part of their willingness to let Justin Upton go prior to the start of the season was a vote of confidence in their two young outfielders. I know Taylor Ward was a first-round pick back in 2015. He's 28 now. We've seen him up and down in the big leagues for parts of four different seasons. You know, a 230-305-388 slash line. I know as a part-time player especially, it's it's hard to, to find consistency at the plate. And the plate skills did get a little bit better than what we'd seen in the previous three seasons with Ward's opportunities a year ago. Got the K rate down to 23.2%. Um, he does hit the ball hard. Like th- There are things he does well enough to justify some playing time. But I keep looking at this, and I keep thinking about the Angels as a team that are willing to play Mike Trout in center field. And I think what we end up having is basically a platoon where Taylor Ward is going to take time from Brandon Marsh, mostly against left-handed starters. I don't know if, if everything's going reasonably well for all parties involved if Ward carves out much more of a role than that. That's entirely possible, especially on day two of the season. Uh, I don't want to get too caught up in manager statements because you know we, we've seen plenty of managers backtrack on things that they say and whether that, that's their intention initially or, or it's just not. But uh, yeah, I think it's just it's something to keep an eye, eye out for because if there is some intention there to, to really do things that way, then... Yeah, the appeal that we see in Brandon Marsh is is a healthy hitter uh, to, to show more power than he did last year, to elevate the ball more than he did last year, which was really one of the main things that was holding back his numbers. Uh, that Maybe that gets neutralized a little bit. I want to talk to you about Seth Beer for a moment. A walk-off homer in the D-backs opener, and he's got playing time because the Universal DH opened up a spot so Seth Beer and Christian Walker can coexist in the Arizona lineup together. If they both hit, they can both play. If Walker doesn't hit, maybe we see Beer take over more playing time at first base. What do you see skills-wise, and how relevant do you think Beer is going to be in leagues where he's available? Do you think he belongs at least in 15-team leagues, or would you even go as far as like a 12-team league possibly because of uh, opportunities to hit higher in the order in Arizona than he might have elsewhere? I wouldn't go so far as 12 teams just yet, but uh, 15 team to me is, is just an absolute no-brainer. 14, 15 team, I think Seth Beer needs to be rostered. Uh, in terms of the profile, like you said, uh, the, the strikeout rate is has been 
pretty decent for beer. Decent power. Uh, but the thing that has impressed me is that it's come from both sides. So I don't think that he's he shouldn't be vulnerable to a platoon. So I agree with what you're saying. That I think there's going to be playing time there for beer. You look at that Diamondbacks lineup. You look at that batting order. And I don't see any reason why he should not be batting fourth or fifth in that lineup. I think if he does deliver on what his his past track record suggests that he should do now, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't move up the order. So, yeah, I think maybe there's a potential at some point for him to be relevant in 12 teamers. I don't think you need to use up the roster space, roster spot at this point. But in anything deeper, I think now is the time. Yeah, I think the cutoff for the time being is any league where you can reasonably justify a power first guy on the big side of a platoon that's where you should be looking at Seth Beer in the short term but there's a chance that he ends up moving up in the order as he suggested heart of the order is absolutely possible and I think he could wrestle his way out of the big side platoon role they have Cooper Hummel working on the other side of a platoon the DH role and leading off too. Hummel in some leagues actually has catcher eligibility so there could be some really deep league appeal if he somehow carves out some playing time since in you know two catcher NL only leagues it's very hard to find anybody who plays let's shift the focus to the deeper leagues though for a few minutes here and and looking at some of the names that are out there uh, that are available in, in more in at least 40% of NFBC main event leagues there's not much behind the plate uh, Kyle Higashioka is more available in, in 12 and, and 15 team leagues outside of the high stakes market. So I think he probably is the best catcher out there in a lot of circumstances, Al. Uh, Tucker Barnhart is actually pretty widely available. I think he's just going to play a lot. I mean, I think that's the the appeal, right? You're not going to lag as much in counting stats if you're in a two-catcher league and you, you use Barnhart as opposed to some of the, the guys that have to share a lot more playing time. Ryan Jeffers is still out there in a, a lot of leagues. Francisco Mejia. Uh, Robinson Chirinos is really just keeping the seat warm until Adley Rutschman is healthy in Baltimore. And then Roberto Perez, Tom Murphy, Gabriel Moreno, uh, really low rostered, but still hanging around out of that group of catchers. Is there anybody else that really catches your eye? No, I would agree with you with you said about uh, Higashioka that, um, to me, he stands out maybe somewhat on a par with Tom Murphy, because I think those are the two in this group that you could rely up upon to give you some power. Uh, although perhaps at the expense of batting average, Moreno obviously is a, a stash candidate, but you might have to stash him a good long while this season. So I, I'm not certainly jumping ahead in any of my leagues to try to roster Moreno, but yeah, Higashioka, I think that he's really viable as a, as a second catcher pretty much anywhere uh, the question is, is, is he going to be able to bat 200? But I, I in the, the waivers column that's uh, just coming out around right now on The Athletic, I made a comparison between him and Mike Zanino and called him basically Zanino light <laughs> because he could be uh, you know, a 2025 homer catcher, but might not hit 200. We, you know, we live with that with Mike Zanino. Obviously, I think the power ceiling is higher for him, but we live with that basic profile with Zanino as a, like a high-end number two catcher, maybe even low-end number one in some leagues. So if you can live with it with Zanino, I think you definitely can live with it with Gashioka. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment. I think I'm always more willing to take on that batting average hit at the catcher spot because they don't play nearly as often as players that play every day at other positions. So you're not getting as much of that anchor weight dumped into that category if you happen to have someone below the Mendoza line in that roster spot. Taking a look over at first base in deeper leagues, I was surprised to see that Carlos Santana 
is actually rostered in fewer than 40% of main event leagues. Easily the uh, least available of these names, guys like Bobby Bradley, Jerickson Profar, Colin Moran, Jace Peterson, who actually has second base and outfield eligibility and will probably add third base too because he's filling in for Luis Urias in Milwaukee. You know, Miguel Cabrera, who's basically the everyday DH now that Spencer Torkelson is up in Detroit, and then Tristan Cassis, who's more of a stash, and Matt Beatty, who looks like an extra guy in San Diego. I think it's kind of a runaway that Carlos Santana is the most interesting of those players. Do you think there's one more productive year coming from him? Because he's got a few really interesting young players knocking on the door to possibly take over that playing time if he goes into a prolonged slump. I do expect some sort of rebound from Santana this year, so I do think he's under-rostered. I also do agree that he's definitely the the class of this particular uh, cohort of first basemen. I brought up Miguel Cabrera on this podcast on Thursday uh, with Mike Curland and, of course, our, our colleague Michael Beller, and I was making the argument that Cabrera was a pretty good run producer. Now, he didn't score very many runs, but he drove in. I, I, I'm doing this from top of mind, but I think he drove in 75 last year for the Tigers. So I don't see any reason why he couldn't necessarily put up similar or maybe even better numbers in terms of maybe driving in roughly 70, 75 runs, batting in the middle of the order with a better order around him and scoring more often. So I don't put him in Carlos Santana's uh, bracket, but I do think that maybe Cabrera's being a little overlooked. Yeah, a viable second option, I think, from that group. And if you're lucky enough to have you know, Darren Ruff available, maybe maybe it's more of a, a Ruff versus Miggy sort of situation. You know, Because I think the problem with Darren Ruff is that he doesn't play every single day. The per plate appearance numbers are great. So if you're in a league with daily moves and he's out there, I think that works exceptionally well if you've got bench space for him. All right, so here's the analogy of the day. Derek Van Riper is to Brandon Marsh as Al Melkier is to Darren Ruff. <laughs> I, he, he is. He doesn't necessarily project to play every day, but he should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's put up tremendous, tremendous numbers uh, in two years. Granted, one was less than half a season, but two years with uh, with the Giants. And I, I just don't see any reason to distrust those numbers, given the, the sample that he's put up over those those two seasons. He is only 2% rostered in ESPN and Yahoo, less than 20% on CBS. So he's, he's pretty much out there in almost any mixed league. And I, I was overlooking him when I was talking about Cabrera and, and Carlos Santana, but I think it's more, to me, it's, clearly rough over Cabrera and more of a push between Ruffin and Santana for me. All right. I'll, I'll accept that. I I believe in the (laughs) skills with Ruff. I'm just, I'm not sure if there's a path for him to play a lot more than he did last year. If there is, I think people are going to be very pleasantly surprised. They're able to get him on a roster at this point. Do you like formula one, but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? then we have the podcast for you. Introducing The Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Let's shift the focus over to second base for a moment. Diego Castillo, 
I think is pretty interesting. He's 43% rostered in main event leagues. So, okay, there was some late draft season interest because it looked like he was pretty clearly going to make the Pirates opening day roster. I'm trying to figure out how he fits into their lineup on a day-to-day basis. Brian Hayes is supposed to be back on Saturday after hurting his wrist in the opener. Uh, Apparently, he's fine. Does Castillo get opportunities at second base? Do they just try to play him at shortstop and punt on defense? I I think that's my issue with him. I think the skills are really interesting, and he's exactly the kind of player the Pirates should be just putting somewhere in the mix, and yet he wasn't in the starting lineup on opening day, so I'm having some second thoughts about making him a priority add in deeper mixed leagues this weekend. Yeah, that's a tough one because I was definitely presuming that Castillo was going to be the regular second baseman, then Hoy Park get the start. Uh, but yeah, I'm with you. I like the skills. Rarely strikes out. Uh, some pretty decent power in the minor leagues. A little bit of stolen base appeal from him. So I can't remember exactly where DVR, but I, I know at some point I wrote about him being sort of a, a you know a better Kevin Newman, like somebody who can give you a lot more power than Kevin Newman with a similar average and you know a handful of steals. So. Uh, Seems like he he deserves a shot. I don't know if, he, if we're going to be able to put him in the same bucket as you know Brandon Marsh and say that you know maybe he's not starting out in a particular role we'd like to see, but but he gets there eventually. But I, I do think he's he's at least worth stashing in fourteen and fifteen teamers if you can. Yeah, he might be one of those guys right on the borderline with that last roster spot where once injuries happen or if we see throughout the weekend that he's not in the lineup for the remaining games in that first series. Maybe you got to make that quick decision to cut him loose in some circumstances, but he's definitely intriguing, and I hope they give him the chance to play. Other second base options that are under 40% in the main event, Robinson Cano surprises me because I think they're going to play him a lot, Al, and and cheap batting average or batting average off the waiver wire with good run production is difficult to find. I mean, maybe we're looking at a similar profile to what Miguel Cabrera brings at this stage of their respective careers, but I think Robbie Cano actually has more power at this stage. I agree. For me, it's really about playing time for Cano, and this was also a player that came up on the Thursday show with Mike Curland, and he was very pessimistic about playing time for Cano, so maybe uh, that it probably shouldn't change with one game, but with a couple of hits in the, the Mets opener, maybe that, that helps him uh, stay in the lineup a little bit more than he would otherwise. I don't know, but um, yeah, I, I certainly think the, the potential for him to, to rise above uh, the rest of the second baseman in this group is is there, but by JD Davis, I think could be deserving of playing time, uh, Dominic Smith. So it's, it's going to be tough for at least one of those players. Yeah. Nico Horner who homered off of Corbin Burns on opening day. I can't even believe I'm saying those words out loud. Uh, he's widely available, stuck in the bottom third of the order for the Cubs right now. I don't really see the power developing for him. I know uh, in the small sample size, that is one game that is a, Uh, DVR looks wrong for the moment, but what do you make of Nico Horner? Do you think there's enough ceiling there to justify trying to get him in mixed leagues because he's actually widely available? Well, I passed on him time and time again, uh, even where I I needed a middle infielder in drafts. So I'm coming in with a little bit of of that bias, but one concern is just, I don't know if he is going to play every day. That's another situation. You know, Jonathan VR, is he going to be taking away time from him? So I'd like to see how that plays out. Uh, unless he goes on a, an extended power tear, I don't expect that I'm going to have to rush to make that decision. So I'd rather wait at least 
maybe till this time next week and see how that playing time situation is shaping up uh, early on. Yeah, definitely not a 12-team consideration. It'd be 15 and deeper, but I'm not convinced that Nico Horner has a whole lot that he can bring to the table for us. Uh, in very deep leagues, I think Sheldon Noisy is another player that I, I'm just interested to see how it plays out. He was kind of stuck as a depth guy with the Dodgers last year, didn't really get many opportunities. Now he's back in Oakland, where he originally put up a big power season at AAA a few years ago that probably drew the attention of the Dodgers in the first place. Uh, what's your interest level in, in Noisy by comparison? Whereas with Horner, we're wondering where the power is. With Noisy, we're wondering if the hit tool is good enough for him to hold on to an everyday role if the A's start giving him those chances. Well, I think what I said for Horner applies for him only maybe even more so because I think there's probably less of an expectation that he'll have regular playing time. So I certainly can be waiting another week or maybe two to see how the A's shuffle all their players on on their roster. Uh, but I'd be really interested uh, because of just the skills to have them on my 15-teamers. But there's certainly more urgency for me to, to pursue some other players this weekend and, and possibly next weekend as well. It's weird how excited I was to see what the, the opening day lineups were going to look like for teams like the A's. They went with Tony Kemp at second. Uh, he was in the leadoff spot. People were expecting a nice spot in the lineup for him. Absolutely the case, at least against righties. Billy McKinney was their DH. Chad Pinder was playing left field and hitting cleanup. Uh, and then Kevin Smith was playing third base down in the bottom third of the order at number seven. This lineup can be so fluid. There's there's so much upward mobility for anybody who's hitting the A's to say, hey, look, you're the three hitter now. Go. <laughs> so uh, I, I would not be too discouraged by Noisy being held out of the lineup against Aaron Nola on opening day if you're thinking about him in deep, deep leagues. But more of a watch list guy, I think, in most mixed leagues for the time being. Moving over to shortstop, Ramon Urias is out there in a lot of leagues. I'm really curious to see how much he's playing for the Orioles. I felt like he was kind of ignored this draft season, and some of the underlying stat cast numbers for him were pretty encouraging. Uh, Geraldo Perdomo has a path to extra playing time in Arizona right now because Nick Ahmed has a bad shoulder. He's been on the IL to start the season. Perdomo has some prospect pedigree, and I think people have sort of forgotten about him a little bit because he's not... He's not your typical like top 40, top 50 sort of prospect, but he's really not that far behind that. He switch hits, and he's one of those guys. He's 6'2". I think as he continues to get stronger, we're going to see more and more power develop. He's been young for the level everywhere he's played. He's shown an ability to get on base at multiple levels as well. I think there's actually a chance that Perdomo just keeps this job, and Nick Ahmed ends up getting traded to a team maybe like the Angels where you know, they could use one more high-quality middle infielder. That's an interesting scenario, yeah. Um, and I, I hadn't really considered that because, uh, yeah, my thinking of Perdomo is that he's just keeping the seat warm. There's not necessarily uh, a long-term uh, a future there for him as, as somebody who's fantasy viable. But uh, th those are all good points. And I, when you look at some of the other shortstop-eligible players who are in that same roster percentage bracket, he, he does stand out as one of the better ones. I, do, I like uh, Ramon Rios a lot. Uh, Kyle Farmer, I buy into what he did last year. So I think maybe in this particular stratum that that uh, I like Kyle Farmer better than Perdomo, better than Arias, but uh, they're they're all interesting options for 15 teamers if they're if they're out there. If Farmer's going to play a lot until Jose Barrero gets back at the very least, and maybe once that happens, it's kind of a question of who's healthy. If 
everybody's healthy, Barrero might push him a little bit. If there are injuries elsewhere, maybe Barrero moves and Farmer ends up staying in a larger role than expected. Obviously, we like the home park as a way of boosting up home runs as well. One position that looks really bad right now is if you are looking for third base help, you will not find much out there. In deeper leagues especially, you're looking at Rugnet Odor. You know, Evan Longoria is hurt right now, so that's a stash for later. J.D. Davis might be losing playing time to Robinson Cano, so he's probably not playing enough. Michael Franco, like I, you, you want to go there? Like I, I certainly don't. Uh, Santiago Espinal, so I, I didn't see much of anything at third base if you're scrambling in a league with 15 or more teams. Yeah, third base is, it was top heavy when we were drafting and it hasn't really changed. So the one name that you mentioned that is super intriguing to me is Evan Longoria. I included him in my my guys column a, a few weeks back. Uh, obviously that was that was right before uh, he went uh, or right before he sustained the injury. Uh, so the good news with Longoria is that his timetables may be a couple of weeks shorter than initially thought. So he could be back in late April instead of uh, early to mid-May. So it's really not as unreasonable to stash him at this point, especially in leagues that have more than 12 teams. But I think once it comes to comes around to him being close to returning, that Longoria is going to be 12 team, uh, 12 team viable as well. It just by virtue of the fact that again, third base is really, really shallow far and away. I think the best option of the names that I've mentioned, the outfield has a pretty interesting cast of characters. I think Cole Calhoun, in that improved Texas lineup might have been slept on a bit. I think there's some appeal for him in 15-team leagues where he's out there. The name that I keep coming back to when I look at the wire in a lot of my leagues, and I was taking him as a reserve pick late in draft season, Al, is Kyle Isbell in Kansas City because I think he's good enough to play center field. And Michael Taylor is a great defender, and there's there's always that temptation if you're getting enough production from the rest of your lineup to just let him be the nine-hitter and, and get good defense in center field. But if they were to go to a platoon... Isbell's the lefty, Taylor's the righty. Maybe he ends up getting some time in the outfield corners if they lose someone to an injury. It's extra crowded right now because Edward Olivares is there as well, and those are two guys that I think the fantasy community wants to see play. Uh, so I think it's more of a, a deep league stash right now, but if you're light on speed and you've got one bench spot that you can play with, Isbell as a cheap pickup for now could be a good way to use that spot to possibly address your need if things break the right way. Yeah. I agree. I would love to see him get more playing time. I'm not confident that it's going to happen, but that scenario that you lay out with him platooning with Michael Taylor, that would be ideal. That the, the Royals get their their defensive whiz uh, in there for a, a chunk of games, but you know we get somebody who's going to be more helpful in fantasy getting the lion's share. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but obviously that's going to be uh, be a situation for us to watch. And also uh, Houston too, uh, Jose Siri getting a lot of starts uh, in center field in spring training, but didn't get the first one in the regular season. So we'll have to watch and see what what happens there because you have two outfielders in Siri and a Jazz McCormick who are both really interesting for 15-teamers if uh, one of them can run away with the job. Yeah, hopefully it doesn't remain a share for too long because I think you're right. One of those guys could end up making a dent if they can take a larger share of the playing time. Let's shift the focus over to pitching for the back half of the show. In shallow leagues, there are some very interesting names available. This is where the leagues I play in versus the leagues that a lot of other people play in, the, the guys we're going to talk about, they're universally rostered in my leagues, but they're not universally rostered in the broader fantasy community. Drew Rasmussen, who is an Eno Saris favorite, uh, has starting pitcher and relief pitcher eligibility in many places where that might matter. 
I think he's deserving of shallow league use because there are fewer questions about what his innings are going to look like early in the season. You know, with Shane Boz on the IL anyway. So I'm following Eno's lead here, but I think Rasmussen is sneaky useful. And I would definitely be considering him even in 10-team leagues because the Rays, as we will talk about a bit later, have a pretty solid schedule. They get Oakland for one of their series during the upcoming week. Uh, Matt Brash, who I think was one of the hottest pitchers in drafts as a, a late pitching target during the final 10 to 14 days of draft season, he could still be out there in some very shallow leagues as well. I'm curious how you look at those guys. Are they actually like consistent 10-team mixed league contributors for you because of their strikeout potential? Consistent uh, with Brash, maybe so. Uh, there's also a question, too, of how many innings he's actually going to get to throw this year. Uh, whether or not he's going to have issues with walks, but man, the strikeout potential for him is just, it's just so enticing. So I am with you that I think that Brash should be rostered everywhere. And I imagine he will be probably pretty soon. And again, if he runs into trouble, if he gets his start skipped here and there, uh, 10 teamers, you, you could drop him. I'm not sure that that's necessarily going to be advisable, but it's easier to do obviously in a shallower league. Drew Rasmussen, I, I, I haven't been thinking of him as somebody who has a nearly as much strikeout potential, but I like him nonetheless because he's been good at managing contact. Uh, I don't see him necessarily as a consistent 10-teamer, but I definitely could see him as, as somebody to stream uh, in a, a league that is uh, that's that, excuse me, that, that is that shallow. Yeah, at least in the two-start weeks especially, I think he's got to be rostered in leagues that are that small. Tyler McGill also you know, snapped up in probably every 15-team league I was in, and it wasn't even like he was an endgame guy. It was more of a 250 to 300 overall sort of pick because as soon as we got wind that Jacob deGrom wasn't going to be healthy and we knew McGill actually had a rotation spot to start the season, that was all anybody needed to say, yep, he's in. The interesting thing was he had the opening day start. Velo was up. He looked really good in that outing against the Nationals. I was really surprised to see he's only currently rostered in 45% of CBS leagues entering the weekend. That number should get pretty close to 100 over the next 48 hours or so, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that start pretty much guaranteed it. And I'm not sure that that's necess- that should necessarily be the case. Uh, I, I do have some worries about McGill. I mean, he was great out of the gate last year or well, when he first came up uh, with the Mets in midseason, but really, really faltered over the last month or so, uh, maybe month and a half, gave up a ton of home runs. I think it was 12 homers in his last 33 innings. So a great start against a team that has some a couple of good hitters and uh, not really that solid as, as you go down the lineup. So I, I'd like to see McGill pitch you know one or two more times uh with with varying uh lineups but i'm probably not going to get that chance to roster him because like you said i mean i'm sure he's going to be snapped up or snapped up everywhere by sunday night i like that it was a three pitch mix did throw a lot of fastballs with that added velo though i can i can live with that uh, sliders and changeups about 20 percent of the time in that first start of 2022 against the nationals uh, nick lodolo still out there in some shallow leagues his debut coming tuesday against the guardians what's your threshold for rostering lodolo at this point pretty much anywhere because i'll go back to what i was saying about matt brash and i, I think that they're actually fairly comparable in in value that if lodolo gets squeezed out when uh when uh, Mike Miner and Luis Castillo come back, then then so be it. Then you go back to the well in, in a 10-teamer. But if he somehow sticks in that rotation, and I really think he should, 
Uh, I mean, I, I like Raver uh, San Martin, but uh, I, I think Lodolo belongs in that uh, rotation more than he does. So, or, or uh, Vladimir Gutierrez for that matter. So I think he should stick again. What we want and what happens isn't necessarily the same thing, but in shallower leagues, I don't see there being a whole lot of risk and there could be a huge payoff if Lodolo stays in that rotation. The huge payoff, I think, is what has me interested in the next guy we're going to talk about. Spencer Strider had five strikeouts and two scoreless innings. I think it's a question of, is he stashable and usable, even in shallow and medium-sized leagues, without knowledge of how he fits into Atlanta's short-term rotation plans? Is he just good enough that he should be picked up now because he could be a difference maker if and when that opportunity becomes something he can have? Yeah, I think so. I think he uh, not necessarily belongs everywhere, but definitely in those deeper leagues, probably 12-teamers too. And my thinking too with the 15-teamers is that if it takes Strider a while to get the rotation or it just doesn't happen because he's so effective in the role that he pitched in on Thursday night, well, that has value too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if, it, if he uh, tosses, let's say, 80 innings of relief and is elite, Across those 80 innings, you look at uh, Colin McHugh a year ago and being a top 10 or top 20 reliever in roto value, uh, pitching in a similar role. So I think that 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 might be the, the worst case scenario for Strider this year. Lots of pitching matchups to consider. And some of these players are also you know shallow league options as well, but they might be more on the roster, off the roster again. Uh, two start weeks. I mean, Eric Lauer, I think, is absolutely worth a mention here, Al. Pitched really well in the back half of 2021 velocity was up this spring it just seems like he is a different guy than the pitcher they acquired when they made that deal with San Diego that sent Trent Grisham to the Padres and also brought Luis Urias back to the Brewers funny how the the arc of that trade looked like a huge win for San Diego during the shortened season looked a little closer to fair at the end of 2021 and now it's starting to tilt more to be a trade that looks like it was a good trade for Milwaukee yeah, yeah, that it is. And uh, I agree with you on what you say about Lauer really uh, being a different pitcher than he was this time a year ago. And I was all ready to, to talk him up in the, the waivers column this week and then realized that uh, we're not really alone in that estimation. He's actually pretty <laughs> widely rostered, as he should be. So, uh, but uh, if you've got him rostered, or if he's actually, if he's out there and available, 10 teamers, 12 teamers, maybe is out there in those formats. Uh, certainly worth starting this coming week. And if you've got him, I think it's uh, a must to get him into your active rotation. Yeah, road start against the Orioles, home start against the Cardinals in those shadow leagues where Lauer is available. Uh, two rays of interest, one similar to Lauer, and then I think he's probably on a lot of rosters already. That's Luis Patino. The other is Ryan Yarbrough. Ryan Yarbrough is the forgotten Rays pitcher this draft season. The matchups are home against Oakland, on the road against the White Sox earlier in the year, especially uh, the cell, as it used to be called. Not a park that I'm as fearful of as I am when we get to June and July and the ball really starts to carry more in Chicago. So uh, what do you make of, of Yarbrough specifically? I think Patino, you could probably take the same analysis as Lauer and just say, as long as the innings are there, he didn't throw a ton of innings this spring. It's a great two-start week for him, and there's probably a lot of long-term appeal there. But I think Yarbrough is the more tricky player to figure out for this week. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I mean, that that White Sox matchup does scare me, uh, even though I, your, your point is well taken in terms of the, the park factor not being as much of a factor in April. Uh, watched the uh, the White Sox uh, play a little bit earlier today. It looked uh, awfully, uh, well, it was Detroit, but, you know, same weather, basically, and it looked pretty chilly. But uh, yeah, Yarbrough, I, 
I have to think that last year was a little bit of a of a fluke because I, I just think he's a better pitcher than he was in, in 2021. Because this time a year ago, I definitely would have trusted Yarbrough with this two-step, given these teams as they're currently constituted. I think this time around, I, I am probably sitting it out just to, to see if he's all right. If there's some way to split it, daily leagues, I would feel fine with starting Yarbrough against the A's. I think streaming against the A's and the Pirates, that's the lowest hanging fruit to start the season. It's kind of the automatic... What am I doing on the waiver wire this week? Which streaming spots am I going to to use and, and who do I want to put in there? That's going to lead you to your, your first few names if you're just playing that game at this point. Uh, I would love to split these starts if possible and, and not see Yarbrough against the White Sox. But I think in a 15-team league, the first start is good enough for me to go ahead and say, yeah, I'll take my chances on him against the White Sox. I think part of my trust in Yarbrough is not his skills, but it's the team that he pitches for and the Rays not being the kind of team that will leave him out there in a terrible spot. If he's getting hit, they'll go a different direction, and hopefully you're not wearing a seven or eight run start on a meltdown sort of day for him. I think the other name that's really interesting on the other side of this two-step for the back part of the week is Rinaldo Lopez. He's getting a chance because of the Lance Lynn injury. He's very low rostered, even in very competitive high-stakes leagues. It's two home starts for Lopez this week against the Mariners and Rays. So these are not easy matchups. The Rays can put plenty of runs on the board, and I think we all expect the Mariners to be at least a step better than they were last year, if not two. But Ronaldo Lopez was quietly really effective, working mostly in a relief role last year, Al. Had LASIK surgery. I think that may have made a pretty big difference. I think it's interesting that in the uh, pitching model that you know Saris has, Lopez popped both in terms of stuff and actually it was pretty good in terms of location as well, which has been a problem for Lopez in the past. Yeah, uh, it's just really a question longer term of opportunity for Lopez, and I hope he does find some way to stay in the rotation because I think he could be really good. And and right now you've got an opportunity to, to get him very, very easily just about anywhere. Uh, so at least in the short term, it's definitely time to get him in those 14, 15 teamers. How about Andrew Heaney at Minnesota versus Cincinnati, probably rostered in a lot of 15-team leagues. Bumpy spring for him. Do you trust him for this two-step? I don't, and I say this as somebody who had written about Heaney last month and, and saying that I think that the the home run issues that he've had uh, may have been some, some poor luck. Uh, but <laughs> I, I've rostered him in a couple of leagues. That said, I, I'm going to be keeping him on, on my bench to see if he is safe to use, if he can make it through these first couple of starts unscathed. Uh, and then I might feel okay about about starting him. It's a tough call when you have a player that you believe in, they get a two-start week early in the year and you don't want to use them. That, to me, almost hints at a player you'd almost want a reason to drop. <laughs> two-start weeks are what you're looking for. And if you can't feel good about it, I don't know. I think that says a lot about where he's at skills-wise and some of the flaws. Clearly, the Dodgers saw something they thought they could fix. We just didn't see the results bear themselves out during his time in the Cactus League this spring. But it's such a small sample, it is hard to put too much stock into that. Michael Waka gets two turns at Detroit versus Minnesota. I have Michael Waka on exactly zero rosters. I don't have to make this decision unless he's a free agent in some of those leagues. I'm curious what you make of him in Boston because I think I've just given up on Waka being the kind of guy that is more than a streamer for us. Well, I don't think you're alone in that. So I think we can take a wait-and-see approach with Michael Waka. And I, I've mentioned a few times uh, on this show in the last several weeks that Waka did put a, a decent stretch together last year. So 
course, we've seen that from plenty of pitchers who never turn that into anything that's uh, that's that good subsequently. So uh, Waka, because of that, Waka is on my watch list. And I think that probably a lot of people aren't even paying attention to him on that level. But uh, yeah, I'm not ready to, to trust him or, or to spend any sort of fab resources to get him. I've on a few occasions pointed out Carlos Hernandez as the Royals young starter that I trust the most. Two at home, one against the Guardians, one against the Tigers. They get 15 team leagues at least I'm in on Hernandez as a streamer this week. And at 12, maybe it's a little more borderline in part because we actually have a lot of other options to consider. But I do like that both of these turns are coming at home. I think you're getting a pretty good strikeout base here too, which is part of why I'm willing to take the chance. Well, I know there's another Royals pitcher that projects for a two-step, and I like that one better, Daniel Lynch, even though he gets the Cardinals instead of the Guardians. Uh, I, you know, I, I like, I was encouraged by what he did in the spring. Uh, I, I'm certainly, I was excited about him last year, uh, even though it didn't turn out that well. So I'd rather take a chance with him than on Hernandez. And like you said, maybe there is some strikeout potential there, but uh, the, I wasn't really that encouraged by by the numbers that he put up with the Royals in, in 2021. Yeah, I'm not as into Daniel Lynch as some people seem to be. So if, if I'm choosing between the two, I'm on the opposite side of that one. But there are a few other names we're going to get to that I think I like better than both. What are you doing with Drew Smiley? If you could split the two starts, you're using him against Pittsburgh on the road and then reserving him before he goes into Coors. But are you absorbing the risk of a Coors start to get a juicy matchup against the Pirates? I would do that with a number of pitchers because because of the Pirates' juiciness. I am not doing that with Drew Smiley. Fair <laughs> enough. I actually He's so homer-prone, I actually don't trust him to come out of that start well. Yeah, that's a, a disaster waiting to happen. So I think that's the kind of move you could stream Miley in matchups like this in August when you're trying to chase ratios. At that point, you know, if you're fourth or fifth from the bottom and... There's, there's no downside anymore because you only have to look at the what could go right scenarios. I think you can justify it then. I think it's really hard to justify that in the second week of the season uh, this early because there's a lot of damage that could be done. Here's the guy that I think I'm really warming up to, Al. Yoan Adone pitched really well in his last start of the season. I think it was game 162 against Boston. And... I'd kind of forgotten about him until I talked to Nick Pollock. Nick was the guest on the Athletic Baseball Show on Friday, and he was surprisingly upbeat about the entire Nats rotation. I don't know if I've found anyone this offseason who was excited about anything the Nats were doing <laughs> with that group. But Adone is a little bit like a Waskari Noah in that he throws hard from the right side. Really good breaking ball with that slider. I mean, the Red Sox were lost against that in that last start of last season. He has to go on the road twice, once to Atlanta, and then once into Pittsburgh. And I think compared to the Coors situation we talked about with Smiley, I'm more willing to take on the risk here. I also think there's more long-term appeal. I think Adone, because of the way that Nats rotation has shaped up, he might stick. He might just be the kind of guy that ends up keeping a spot all season. And he might be one of those guys that you say, wow, I can't believe he wasn't on more radars during draft season, but he ended up being a great first or second week pickup for a lot of people. Yeah, and and I'll include myself uh, among those that that have picked him up. And this is in a very very deep league, and got him off of waivers as soon as the news broke that he was going to be in the Nationals rotation. And I'm excited about starting him for this two start week. Like you said, the Pittsburgh start 
even if he get, uh, gets scuffed up a little bit against the Braves, that's uh, that could be a good week overall for him. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to see how that goes. I had one other name that I think is a little bit overlooked. Another one that came up on the conversation with Nick Pollock, Taylor Hearn in Texas, home against the Rockies, home against the Angels, second start much tougher than the first one. I think Hearn might be useful enough to throw him out there in a 15-team league and probably not going to take an overwhelming sort of bid to get him. I don't know if you want to keep him around on your roster beyond the upcoming week, but I think he's right on that borderline of guys that you should probably err on the side of bidding on if you're looking to fill out the bottom part of your pitching staff in a 15-team league. Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely right. Uh, this is a pretty pretty good two-step. You have to love any time that you get the Rockies on the road. And uh, Hearn is the sort of pitcher that I think that you're going to need a two-start week for him to really uh, to really be helped out because I don't think he's going to give you a lot of strikeouts just in one-start weeks. But yeah, this particular double dip, that looks really good. And, and I agree too. I mean, I, I'm not planning on bidding more than probably about 1.5% on him. And I think that's it's possible I could get him with that. Yeah, that might be enough to actually end up with Hearn on some rosters if you go that route. I'm going to throw a bunch of other names at you rapid fire style, and you can stop me at the end if any of these names are interesting to you. Austin Gomber, who is at Texas, but then back home against the Cubs. Always fun to think about the Austin Gomber two steps after one that went horribly wrong last year, but he actually pitched really well after the two step that went wrong. Tyler Alexander, who's got Boston at home, Casey on the road, Dakota Hudson, home against the Pirates, road against the Brewers, his teammate, Jordan Hicks, home against the Royals, road against the Brewers. Any of those last four stand out to you as viable two steps? Gomber's probably the closest, but as somebody who does have him in a couple of leagues, I'm just taking a wait and see approach with him because like you said, he pitched very well for the bulk of last season, but he got hurt and he wasn't really the same again and just want to make sure that he's back to a hundred percent. Not that I, I don't fear that two step at all. I mean, the, the Cubs and cores, uh, that's, that's going to be one of the mat- better matchups that you could have, uh, you know, anywhere. So, um, I, I still want to see how he, how he does. Cause if he, if he fares well there, I'm going to be able to trust him against, uh, probably some even better teams than that. And I think Dakota Hudson from a streaming perspective makes the most sense of this group. I think, Home against the Pirates is a gift and road against the Brewers until the Brewers show us that they're at least a league average offense. I'm not afraid of using pitchers against them. That's this is where I'm at. If they when they get Urias healthy, if they get Yelich hitting, if they get production from Telez and Hira at first base, sure. Like there's there's a easy path to them being the kind of lineup that you don't mess with at American Family Field. But until they show us that they're that team that they could be Take your chances kind of on the margins, especially if you're getting them as part of a, a two-step where the first matchup should be a layup. The Jordan Hicks thing, I mean, I, I'm i stunned he's getting a shot in the rotation. He's filthy. I think it could be a lot of fun. I'm worried about the workload in the short term. So just keeping an eye on him. Uh, I don't think it's easy to roster him in a lot of leagues with this kind of stretching out on the fly scenario. And I think there's also some durability concerns you have as he gets stretched out as well. How how much is his workload really going to resemble a normal starter's workload even once they get him to 75 or 80 pitches? Is he going to be able to hold up physically in that role? Uh, Adam Aller gets two starts, by the way. Don't go anywhere near it. At Tampa Bay, at Toronto, great story. He's a watch list guy for possible home streaming options later if he turns out to have a good arsenal 
the single start streamers that I, I thought were interesting. Michael Lorenzen, home against the Marlins. Not a guy I ordinarily like, but at least in deeper leagues, I think he could be you know a, a min-bid sort of guy at the bottom of your list just to make sure you get someone. Jose Suarez might have a little more long-term appeal out of that Angels rotation. He is at Texas, Al. You got Chris Bubich home against the Tigers. And Anibal Sanchez checking the box this week for the anybody against the Pirates is is fair game, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got some some good two start options. We've got uh, some other one start options besides Anibal Sanchez, who really intrigued me a lot. I, actually, I I really like all of them to some degree. Uh, I really like Suarez and Bubich. Um, I mean that uh, versus the Tigers. I don't view that as necessarily a cake matchup, but I I just like Bubich and uh, Suarez at Texas. I, I I think is really good. Lorenzen, I'm not sure about, but versus the Marlins, that feels pretty safe to me. So if the if those options weren't as good, then I might take a take a whirl with Anibal Sanchez. But um, at this point, I am just going to sit back. Sanchez is definitely on my watch list, just because even though it's been a few years since he's been good, he was good at a, at a point where a lot of people had given up on him before, and I hold out hope that that maybe we get. We get one more uh, second or third or fourth wind out of uh, Anibal Sanchez. Let's get to the closers as we do at the end of this episode each and every week. We had changes in Minnesota and San Diego thanks to the opening day trade that sent Chris Paddock and Emilio Pagan to the Twins. Taylor Rogers and Brent Rooker went back to San Diego. It didn't take long. By the end of the day, Thursday, Bob Melvin said Taylor Rogers is our closer. He was not available Thursday for the aforementioned Seth Beer walk-off against the Padres, but from Friday on, Rogers is the guy not really available anywhere. But what it does leave us is with this question in Minnesota. Is it Jorge Alcala? Is it Tyler Duffy? Is it someone else? The Twins, I think, under Rocco Baldelli have shown, even when Taylor Rogers was healthy, they were willing to mix and match and go the committee route with saves. So in leagues where there are Twins relievers available, how aggressively are you pursuing them? I am sitting back. <laughs> and you make a great point about how Baldelli managed the bullpen uh, when Rogers was there, because to me, he was the clear, should have been the clear closer there. And, uh, you know, last year, I think he had the third most saves of any Twins reliever. So now we have a situation where there isn't somebody who's clearly best fit for that role. And with them acquiring Emilio Pagan, uh, that to me just means uh, he's probably right in that mix. So if I if I had to uh, settle on one, I would say it would be Alcala. But I really have very little faith that any one reliever is going to run away with this. I think both Alcala and Duffy are worth build, uh, bidding on. I think they win enough games where their committee, if it turns out to be two, will be a better committee to be invested in than, say, Seattle, where it could be four or five, or the Rays, once they get healthier. I think Andrew Kittredge is going to get a lot of saves, though. If there's some shallow leagues out there, eight or ten teamers where Kittredge is somehow available, Kittredge is the reliever that you really want to go out and get right now. But I'll take Alcala over Duffy by a slim margin Fab leagues, I mean, I'm, I'm at least throwing 5 to 7% out there if I'm desperate for saves. I think there's an, enough of a, a reason to believe that it could be a near-even split. Hopefully it's not Pagan part of that, too, and Yohan Duran and other other options. But I, I'm cautiously optimistic despite the circumstances. Are you cutting loose the other San Diego relievers? If you had Robert Suarez and Pierce Johnson, Denelson Lamette, any of those guys, are they, are they all easy cuts for you this weekend? 
They would be. I mean, I avoided that situation for the same reason that I was just saying I was avoiding the twin situation, which is I didn't see one person as a standout in that group. But if I had uh, drafted any of them, I would feel very comfortable with cutting them right now, now that uh, Bob Melvin has said that Rogers is the guy. I think where we're going to see some really aggressive spending is with the Cubs, a presumed closer, David Robertson. He got the save on opening day. Michael Givens came in for one out in the eighth inning. So that was a situation where Givens probably could have come back pretty easily and been the guy and got four outs to end the game. They chose not to go that route, seeing as they're both righties. I think that gives us a pretty good indicator that they want Robertson to be the guy. We don't know if he'll share with anybody else, but I'm kind of optimistic about Robertson sticking here. How much are you going to spend, though? What percentage of your budget are you throwing out there on Robertson if he truly looks like the best reliever available and someone that could actually have a job to himself? Well, first of all, I, I read this the same way that you do. I, it really seems like he's not only because of that usage pattern that he's probably in the, the driver's seat, but he also just does strike me as the pitcher in that bullpen who is best suited to closing. That said... So early in the season, I mean, we we could get fooled on this. You know, maybe Rowan Wick gets the next save. So uh, I wouldn't go more than than four percent on Robertson, probably to my detriment. But I just don't want to get burned. Oh yeah, this is like the time Denunzio didn't get a Coke in Caddyshack because he wasn't going to pay fifty cents for a Coke. You're not getting David Robertson anywhere for four percent. <laughs> That's just not going to happen. <laughs> that I won't have my coke. <laughs> you are you are out on Robertson with that bit. I think it's worth throwing in there in case he slips through. But I think you're going to see in in high stakes scenarios, you know, twenty five percent of a budget going out there to each their own in terms of desperation for saves. This could this could be a disaster, as you suggested. I guess I'm not that confident in Rowan Wick's stuff. I think Robertson's track record, I think the fact that they've got him on a very affordable contract and he's not an arbitration guy at this point, I think that kind of works in his favor as well. Yeah. Stuff looked really good with the Rays in the brief time we saw him last year too, so there might be a little bit of a skills gap between Robertson and some of the other options that the Cubs have. Chris Martin, who was brought in, I think he pitched somewhat early in that game. Was it the 6th or, or 7th yesterday? I, I just thought the way that that all played out gave us a lot more clarity than I would have expected from one game. But we'll see if we get any more information from the Cubs' late-inning usage over the next couple of days before waivers run on Sunday night. I think the toughest situation to bid on of all is in Cincinnati. Tony Santillan with a two-strikeout scoreless inning. It was a three-run lead. Strong committee vibes in Cincinnati. I think that's just what they want to do. But seeing how it played out, seeing that it, it wasn't some of the names we were thinking about, like Art Warren getting that opportunity, what are you doing in leagues where Santillan is available, which seems to be just about every league. I don't think I saw him go in any draft or auction that I was a part of. I'm going to be making small or no bids on Santillan. And I, I like him. Uh, I think if Art Warren weren't in that mix, maybe I would go a little more aggressively. But I mean, this is part of just a general approach. So people should absolutely feel free to do something completely different and be more aggressive. But it's just, you know, we've seen this over and over that we we're getting a, a crop of unexpected possibly unexpected closers uh, in the first couple of days here. Next week, we could be talking about a different group. Three, four weeks from now, a different group yet. So I you know, I don't want to blow so much fab early on uh, speculating on saves because I'll let other people spend that money and then um, you know, may, maybe come in later on in April and, and see what's happening then. Because there, there will be turnover. 
uh, and uh, I'll, I'll have a little bit more money maybe relative to the rest of the league to play with at that point. So it's interesting because it was a 6-1 game and Dowry Moreta came in and, and pitched the eighth and Atlanta cut the lead to 6-3. to three. And I wonder how much of that was Santillan was already warming up in a, in a five-run situation. And because they're a committee team, they said, you know what, we like this guy enough. We can use him with a three-run lead. I, I don't know if anyone else was warming up or getting loose, if they had Warren ready, if they needed him, if, if Santillan got in trouble. I think ever since Rysel Iglesias left the Reds, it has seemed like their MO has been to go the committee route. And I think compared to a team like Minnesota, where it might be down to two legitimate contenders, even when he was last asked about it, David Bell rattled off five different names. Maybe he was just messing you know, with the people that asked the question. Maybe it's just more of the, the philosophy coming out with an absurd sort of answer. But I think I'm looking at more of like a 5% bid if I'm looking at Santian. If you catch lightning in a bottle and he ends up in a two-person committee or somehow gets the job to himself, great. But I don't want to be in that situation where I spent 20% of my budget on one save. And again, we're talking late afternoon Friday, maybe Saturday, Sunday. We, we learn a little bit more about how they intend to to do things, and that shapes the bidding or even lowers it slightly depending on what else happens between now and Sunday night. But I'm trying to play this situation probably as carefully as you're playing the Minnesota situation. Uh, so if I'm looking at all these guys, Robertson is the clear preference for me. Jorge Alcala comes in at second, uh, Tyler Duffy probably third, Santillan fourth, because I think Cincinnati will kind of follow through and, and push more guys out there. And I just think the circumstances for that Thursday night save were a little bit funky. And I don't want to put too much stock into that. This is the most fun part of our game, right? Trying to figure out who's getting saves. Eh, maybe not. I think I'm I think I'm lying just a little bit on that one. But hopefully this was helpful. Hopefully this was insightful. If you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, we'd greatly appreciate that. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You should definitely check out Al's waiver column. That should be up by the time you hear this as a podcast. That'll be up on The Athletic. Theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast gets you a subscription for $1 a month for the first six months. That basically covers you for fantasy baseball season. So it's a heck of a deal to get everything we're doing for fantasy baseball this season. On Twitter, Alice at BB. I am at Derek Van Riper. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thank you.